Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity that it holds. I pray that in these moments that we have together, that you would open our eyes to remind us of what we have to be grateful for, that you would remind us of, of, of not just the gifts that you've given to us, but may our worship roll past those gifts right to the throne room of heaven, and may our worship in some way, shape, or form put a smile on your face today. It's in the matchless name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. How many of you are turkeyed up? Good. Hopefully that, that weird drug that the turkey does to us when we eat too much of it and knocks us out, hopefully that's worn off on you. Um, I don't know if you can tell, I've tried to combat that with caffeine this morning. Caffeine is winning. So good news. Second Kings chapter 5. Take your Bible, turn to Second Kings chapter 5 with me. I know your Bible is kind of automatically open to Hebrews right now. Uh, but in this in-between week, as we get ready to start our Christmas series next week, um, there was something in the Hebrews, and I'll just be really painfully uh, honest here, there was something in the Hebrews uh, series that we were doing that while I was studying, 2 Kings 5 came to mind, and I'm like, I got to do that that week. I could not tell you what it was. I have no idea what triggered this memory uh, for, for the story of this man named Naaman. So we're going to walk through 2 Kings chapter 5 together. You can scan the code there if you can't find it in your Bible or using a electronic device. And first, let me say this. Thank you so much for your patience this morning. Once again, Thanksgiving weekend, mom guilt is working strong and the place is packed. So um, they are working on getting more seats in here and making sure everybody gets in and comfortable. And we'll, we'll uh, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. So um, game on. Here we go. Second Kings 5. Buckle up. Lots to do. Um, Second Kings 5. What I want to do this morning, kind of give you the groundwork. I'm going to tell the story, walk through the story, tell the story, point out some high points some real specific things that you need to know about the story. And then when it's done, I'm going to go through, and I think I've landed on at least six application points that I want to make revisiting parts of the story. So if you're a note keeper, um, the last, you know, ten minutes, five minutes of our time together really will be uh, your sweet time where you will be like, that guy talks way too fast. All right, 2 Kings 5, verse 1 says this. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. So let me just give you a little bit of context. Aram is Syria. So it's Syria. And so the Syrian, some of your versions, Bible versions, translations have Syria as the country named there. And so, so Syria has been given victory uh, in its military conquest. So what's very interesting is that that verse says the Lord gave victory to Syria. Syria is Israel's sworn enemy. And so God had actually intervened in the lives of the people of Israel because of the rebellion to bring about judgment. And in so doing, he had given victory to Israel's enemy as they battled Israel. Just a small side note. Maybe God knows what he's doing in all of the affairs of the world. Not just in one area, right? All right, so, so, so this is happening. Now you've got this man named Naaman. He is a wealthy, victorious general. Who, who, who had the ear of the king. Actually, as you get towards the end of the chapter, in verse 18, as he's asking a question of the prophet Elisha, it says that he actually, the king leans on his arm when they go to the temple. The, the picture is, this guy is, at the very least, he was a general, a military ruler, and now he is the prime minister of Syria, or Aram, as our text says this morning. And so that's who Naaman is. And the, the verse continues, and see this, this man was a valiant warrior, but... He had leprosy. I, so, so you lead up to that point, and you're like, this guy is amazing. He is like 
He, he, is, he is important to his master, the king. He's highly regarded around the nation. He is a valiant warrior. I mean, you hear that description. You're like, that's a dude who I admire. That's a fellow who I aspire to be like. That's someone I can model my life after. And you, you keep going like, this is the man until, but one day a spot showed up. Leprosy. Leprosy was the most feared disease of its time because there's no known cure. It begins as a small, white, powdery patch of skin, kind of like a rash, and then it, it would eventually spread all over the body, and as the rash spread, the places that were affected by the rash, those nerve endings would die. Boils would then develop in those areas all over your body until finally at some point you are covered in gaping wounds, raw flesh, it got so bad that, that, that pieces of your body would fall off. It was not unusual for a leper to lose a finger, a nose, an ear, something. Your face would be completely distorted. This is, this is a, a disease to fear greatly. It almost always led to death. And it wasn't just feared because of the physical nature of this disease. It was feared because the person who ended up with leprosy was an outcast immediately. Not just because it was disfiguring, but it was considered highly contagious. And so all around the known world, when leprosy would come out, they would set up leprous camps and send people to those camps. You read the Old Testament law, and God gives his prescription for how to deal with someone who has leprosy in the nation of Israel. And what would happen is as soon as they were diagnosed with leprosy, they would have to leave their camp, leave their family, leave their homes, leave the things that they had found most familiar and most comfortable, leave all of those things that made them them go outside of the camp and avoid people at all costs. If they ever came into contact with people, if they were walking down a trail and, and other people were coming towards them and they knew they had leprosy, they were responsible morally, morally responsible to cover their faces, cover their mouth, and shout at the top of their lungs, unclean, I'm unclean, because nobody wanted to walk near a leper because it was so contagious, or so they thought. He's a valiant warrior, important to his master, highly regarded by his nation, responsible for bringing victory to the, the Aramean army, the ultimate insider, discovers a spot, and now he's an He's absolutely powerless to fix it himself. That brings us to verse 2. Now Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. She had this little girl, 13 years old. 12 to 14, so I mean, about 13. <laughs> um, during one of the invasions of the Syrian or Aramean army into Israel, into Samaria, she was kidnapped, enslaved, maybe trafficked, but at the very least, best case scenario, she and all of her family members were captured and sent into slavery. More likely, though, she and her she was captured and her family was put to death in front of her and she was brought into the home of her captor Naaman 
So think about this for a minute. Let's say, let's just pretend that if I asked you the question, who is the one person in your life who has brought you the most harm, and you were able to think of a name immediately, let's just pretend that's the case. Because you know that's the case for most of us, right? And that person who's brought you the most harm, you're living in his home, and he contracts what is the most deadly and feared disease of the day. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, we could not blame this little girl. She was like, thank goodness, I can't wait till his nose falls off. Right? You, you can't, well, couldn't possibly blame this little girl for, for privately enjoying the death sentence that this, this man Naaman had suddenly received. Somehow you hear out of her words of life. And, and, and it's identified by this, this really interesting phrase at the very beginning of her statement, if only. Hebrew phrase of desire out of compassion. Oh, if only, if only you could get to that specialist. If only, if only you could afford that treatment. If only my master were able to be with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. Verse 4, so Naaman, hearing this from the young girl, told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And therefore, the king of Aram said, go, and I'll send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. So you, you read historians of the day, we're not exactly sure, even if you translate it into modern equivalency, the, the, the silver and the gold, that, that's right around $4 million at least. He loads up a cart with silver and gold, and he's, what actually I find funny, he also loads up clothing. It's a little weird. Ten sets of clothing, not just clothing, but so like, here's $4 million and an old navy sweater, just to make sure. Um, it's a little strange, but when you dive into it, it's actually the, the, the type of clothing, it's, it's party clothing. It's a type of clothing that, that most people wouldn't own, even a single set of that clothing, nonetheless, not, 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 not forget ten parts. And so here, Naaman, here, I'm going to be cool for the cool kids. So, so here, Naaman is... <coughs> bringing the drip. He's given them the swagger. Or as the cool kids say, giving them the sauce. I found a new website this week, can you tell? <laughs> anyway, let's keep going. Verse 6. <laughs> he brought the letter to the king. Stephanie, it worked! Oh, anyway, okay, so... Um. <laughs> I didn't ask. All right, verse 6, he brought the letter. <laughs> he brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read this. When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. This is amazing. So Naaman goes to the king of Aram, and he's like, okay, if I go to this to Israel, there's a man there who can cure me of the leprosy. And so, so the king's like, let's go, I'll write a letter for you. And the king of Aram sends a letter to the king of Israel. Remember, Aram is Israel's sworn enemy. Aram is just bullying Israel around right now, defeating them around every turn. And so now the king of Israel receives this letter from his sworn enemy that says, now that you've received this letter, note that, that I have sent you my servant Naaman, and I want you to cure him of his skin disease. No pressure. And the king of Israel reads the note. And it says he tore his clothes. 
And he asked, am I God killing and giving life that, that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize this. He is only picking a fight with you. The king of Israel is like, I can't, I can't do this. I don't care how much money's in his cart. I, I can't heal leprosy. I think, and his thinking is this king, his enemy, the king of Aram, is, is, is looking for an excuse to, to go to war. Well, the king's like, I, I, I sent you my servant to heal him, and you didn't, and so now it's on. Verse 8, Elisha hears about the king tearing his clothes in, in, in mourning. Verse 8, the king of Israel had torn his clothes. Elisha sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he'll know that there is a, a prophet in Israel. Elisha sees that there is an opportunity to show something to a lot of people all at once. He knows that there's something more going on than just this leprosy. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Please remember when you see this, when Naaman comes with horses and chariots, you aren't just seeing huge wealth. It's not like somebody rolls up to our front door in, in limos and fancy seats and sun, uh, fancy um, SUVs and, and, and fancy suits and and, and, and glass sunglasses and comes up and knocks on our door like, good morning. And they're, they're like, you could tell that they're just dripping with money, right? No, 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 no. Now, the people of Israel were familiar with Naaman's horses and chariots. This is their army. So it would be like a line of Humvees and then helicopters flying in and heavily armed soldiers knocking on our front door. That's the feeling you would get when you went to that door. So get the image. Naaman rolls up to Elisha's, the prophet's house army with him, and he's standing at the door. Verse 10. So Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your skin will be restored, and you will be clean. Get this. One of the most prominent, exclusive, important men in the country of Aram comes to your front door with the army knocks on it, and the prophet Elisha doesn't come to the door. He sends a messenger instead. I mean, in my mind, the messenger comes to the door. I don't even know if he undoes the little chain. He's just like, hello. And he gets a little spot. He's like, I need to be healed. Okay, go to the Jordan River, wash seven times. And that's how unimportant they treat Naaman. That's, that's how they treat him. One of the most powerful men in the world is showing up at the front door, and the prophet doesn't even get off the couch. Verse 11. Naaman gets angry, and he leaves, and, 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 and he says, I was telling myself. No, he's going to come out. Yeah, he's going to stand. He's going to call in the name of the Lord his God. He's going to wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. But aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I just wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he left in a rage. I love that. Naaman just says what he was thinking. He's like, I thought I was going to show up, and, and it would be fog, and and lighting and special effects and, and then the, the crowd would be and then and Elisha would come out wearing a fancy robe, he'd do some, some warm up magic tricks and then he'd be like okay now everybody shh, gets everybody quiet and waves his hand over uh, abracadabra poof and the skin disease would be gone but the dude didn't even get off the couch and so Naaman's furious and the Jordan River that filthy, insignificant, dirty little river. We got better rivers back home. 
And I, I don't know, somebody suggested that maybe in Naaman's mind, he's thinking, I would understand what they're up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the, the big general of Aram, and he's going to come into Israel. Yeah, go, go wash in the Jordan River. Nobody washes in the Jordan River. But go ahead, go dip in there. And then as he comes up the water the third time, the, the paparazzi of Israel is like, <laughs> and they're going to use the pictures to embarrass him or something. He's like, well, why would I do this? And, and as he considers all of these things, which have a not-so-subtle inference of don't they know who I am, he leaves in a rage. That word is literally venom or heat. And if you're Israel, and you, the last thing you want is the lead general of your enemy leaving ticked off. But as he gets ready to go, his servants begin speaking to him. Verse 13, his servants approached him and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? Like, name it. If he would have said, go find the dragon of the Orient and clip its toenails and bring it back to the prophet, you would have done that. If he would have told you to walk on coals, you would have done that. If he would have told you to go conquer all of these countries, you would have done that. Because very few people can possibly do those things, but you are of such a nature and such a character, and you are so prominent and powerful and, 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 and vigilant, then you probably could do those things. And all he told you to do was wash, and anyone can do that, and that just torch you. And the servant's like, Naaman, you, you need to do this. Verse 14, so Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. I think it's funny, the servants are probably standing there and I'm wondering if Naaman's shooting him glances after each time he comes up out of the water. It's like, one, two, three, four. <laughs> you don't know what's happening, but after that seventh time, that seventh time it says, then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy. He was clean. And Naaman and his whole company, verse 15, went back to the man of God and they stood before him and they declared, I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. First time he actually comes face to face with the man who is responsible for his healing. Let's put yourself in that situation. You have a, a terminal illness that nobody can find solutions to. You've gone to every doctor you could possibly go to. You've made every appointment. You've kept every appointment. You've followed every treatment plan. Just absolutely every dot, every cross. You have done it all, and yet nothing is working. But you, you find this one person who's like, I got answers for you. Here, just do this. And you go and do it. And you have immediate results. Suddenly this thing that has been terminal in your life, this thing that has been overwhelming you in your life, this thing has just been tearing you up, it's suddenly gone. And you come face to face with that person again. What, what are you going to say? Aren't you going to be like, you saved my life. You, you saved my life. But Naaman comes back and says this. There is no God like your God. There is, there's absolutely no God like your God. He doesn't mention leprosy. He doesn't mention Elisha. It's, 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 like, it's like this. It's like going to your boss and be like, hey, boss, I need, I need Friday off. I need Friday off. And I know I'm asking a lot, but I, I need to get Friday off. And your boss is like, hey, listen, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I needed to talk to you about something I keep forgetting. So uh, effective next week, I'm raising your salary by 100000 Is that all right? 
No. <laughs> when you leave the office, are you like, oh, I forgot to get Friday off. What happened in Naaman's life is all of a sudden he's like, forget the leprosy. Forget the prophets. There is no God like your God. What God has done is he has used Naaman's search for a cure to lead him to something that is greater than the cure itself. He leads, it leads him to God himself. There is no God in the whole world like this. He's so gracious and merciful to somebody like me. And then he just continues. Therefore, uh, please accept a gift from your servant. Verse 15, verse 16. But Elisha said, as, as long as the Lord lives, in whose presence I stand, I will not accept a gift from you. And Naaman urged him to accept it, but, but he refused. So just, just for context sake, it, it's not that there's something wrong with uh, Elisha accepting the gift from Naaman. But Elisha, uh, uh, and actually he makes a comment to his servant Gehazi a little bit later. It's like, that was not the time to receive gifts. It's, he's almost saying, like, right now, if we were to take these gifts, it would communicate to people things that we don't want to communicate. And what it would communicate is that there was a charge for God to work in somebody's life. And, and, and what I need people to remember and understand is it comes with no cost to you. It comes at the cost of somebody else, not to you. So after Elisha refuses the gift, <laughs> Naaman says, um, it's funny, somebody was like, I can't wait till you do 18 and 19. And I was like, I'm skipping it. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. I just had the verses wrong. So, so uh, you're welcome. <laughs> it's really like one of those, what? Get ready. Listen to 17, 18, and 19. Naaman responded, okay, if you won't receive my gift, if not, Please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. However, in a particular manner, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimmon to bow in worship while he is leaning on my arm, when I have to bow in the temple of Rimmon, when I bow in the temple of Rimmon, May the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So, so it's really, it's not difficult to follow, but it is kind of difficult to follow. So what happens is, is okay, Naaman's like, take the money. And Elijah says, I won't take the money. He says, okay, so, so if you won't take the money, allow me to, to get two uh, uh, donkeys and let's, let's carry out uh, uh, um, uh, a bunch of soil. Is that okay? I'm going to bring the dirt home because when I offer sacrifices, I want to feel like I'm in Israel. Okay, so, so just for the record, there was no command for Naaman to do this. Naaman's just freestyling. He's just winging it here. This is the beauty of somebody who comes face to face with the God of the universe for the first time. They're like, I got to do something. Give me some dirt. Right? There's glory in somebody coming to faith and they're like excited about everything. Like, I've got the solution. Dirt will fix everything. And then it gets even weirder. He's like, okay, and, and I know, I know I'm going to need forgiveness for this. Because my boss, the king, the guy who could actually put me to death, likes to go and worship this false idol. And we go into the false idol's temple, and he's holding onto my arm, and he bows. I have to bow with him. And so I just, I'm just asking in advance, can, can God forgive me for doing that? Would that be okay? And, and <laughs> it seems like he's asking for permission not to speak up, doesn't it? And you and I might hear the question and get ready to just absolutely shout out loud with Elisha, absolutely not! If you're not fully committed to God, why would he be fully committed to you? No, you're supposed to speak up and, and fight with the best apologetics that I can give you. I mean, if you're not all in, you should check yourself. But before the word no can form on our lips, 
Elisha responds to his request in verse 19. So Elisha says to him, go in peace. And that ends our sermon. Let's go home. (laughs) Application points. I'm going to start with that one. So I'm not leaving you hanging too long. First, the dirt. Let's talk about this dirt and this request that Naaman makes. Hey, guys, please remember this. Naaman is as new in his faith as anybody can possibly ever be. His obedience is at baby stage. He is super imperfect. He is just starting out. But what he's doing is he's trying to apply his new relationship to his old life. And that gets tricky. And those of us who have been in the faith for a long time know those, those, those things don't necessarily always go together. But when you're a new believer in Christ, it's not like, like I got this all figured out. No, 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 no. But you are going to do everything you possibly can do. We've got to stop thinking and expecting that people who suddenly come to faith in Jesus Christ are like, cool, I'm going to turn everything that I've ever done backwards. I'm, I'm not going to listen to that music anymore. I'm not going to say those words anymore. I'm not going to go to those places anymore. I'm not going to do those things or think those thoughts. or Stop. Babies start off by drooling a lot, stumbling around because their melon is so big that it's got to follow it wherever it goes. It takes them a little while to get their feet underneath them. Listen, you're not going to be perfect, but are you on the right trajectory? That's what I think is happening here. There's absolutely a time for growth, and everyone has to know where your affections lie. But that's going to look different. And let me share a story and, and... Forgive me, but I think this is the best picture of it. I won't even use his name. But um, years ago, this is probably 20 years ago now, uh, we were, I got to go to a Bible study that was filled with a bunch of uh, new, newly saved couples who had come out of a very, very colorful life. Very colorful. Like each couple, you're like, oh boy, this is a lively group. And as soon as they start asking questions, you know you're going to be there a while. We're in the middle of Bible study. Middle of Bible study. There's 14 of us in a kitchen. And the way we do it is we, we each read a verse. And then we just talk. And so we're going around the room reading a verse. And one dude reads his verse. And before the next person can start their verse, says, beep, 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 beep. That's a great verse. It is. You're right. You're right, and and it was funny because his wife was like, oh my goodness, you've got to stop doing that. But in that moment, the the right response is for me, (laughs) well, it may not be the right response, but it was my response, was, hey, yo, 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 it's it's okay, that'll come. I mean, we don't want you to do that. It's way worse if I start doing that, then we got problems. You, it's, what's your trajectory? Do the people around you know what your affection is? Do you think people would know when Naaman came with his shovel of dirt into the temple and was like, whoosh? Got any questions? Think you can tell them? Yeah. It leads us to the next one. The girl. This little girl speaks up with courage and shows incredible grace. Like, only a child could do that. She shares words of life with her enemy, the person who has done her the most harm by a long shot, and yet she speaks up. So friends, how many times, how many times do we keep quiet when we have the words of life? And, and here's the problem. We don't just keep those words from people that we think are our enemies. We keep those words from people 
or our closest families and closest friends. Are you speaking up? Because you know that there is no other God like the God of Israel. Are you speaking up? The response. I love this response of Naaman when he comes back. There is no God like your God. That's the, the proper response to whatever God has done. It should never be. And this is a good, um, I'll say measurement tool. But, but we got to be careful and cautious. It should never be a celebration of, of, of the thing. It should never be a celebration of a, of a person. It should always be a celebration of who God is because of, of who God is. When it comes to good food, good drink, good, good times with our friends and family this week at Thanksgiving, it should never be like, that was the greatest turkey ever. That, no, it should be, this is an amazing gift from God. Thank you for the way that you have given this to me. I don't deserve this. This comes from your hands. When it comes to good relationships, good marriages, good family, good, good friendships, it shouldn't just be, man, I, I just love that person. I'm so thankful for everything they've done. No, it should be, I'm so thankful for what you have given to me in that person, that our response to the work of God in our lives, even in situations where it's like, look, at, I, I, I'm, I'm better. I, I, I'm, I've been healed. It should never be, look, I'm healed. No, it should be, God is so very good to me. That should be the very first thing. And the last thing that comes from your mouth. That's the response. The next one is the spot. Well, Naaman, what do you think went through Naaman's head when he found that spot that day? For some of us, we, we don't need to really challenge ourselves even to think, do we? Because some of us have experienced that. Whether it be illness, relationships, or maybe, maybe. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and God has allowed a spot in your life to remind you of something very important. Remind you that you're not as put together as you thought you were. Maybe your marriage is having trouble today. Maybe there's a situation with your kids that makes you feel helpless as a parent. Maybe you just have this problem in your life, there is no solving it. There's an addiction that still has its teeth inside of you. Maybe you grapple with a paralyzing fear. Maybe you, you have a past, a failure that you can't shake. Maybe your spot is an unhappiness or a loneliness that just seems to remain no matter what. Maybe your spot is waking up to the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of your financial security as you lose your job. And, and maybe, maybe it's a health scare. Every single one of those things points us to a bigger solution. God uses spots to bring you to himself. Paul tells us that no man seeks for God on his own. That God is so, so interested in pursuing you that he'll stop at nothing to get your attention. So that when the spot appears... When you start looking for the healing for the spot, I need healing for the spot. What you find is something better than the healing for a spot. You find God. The good news, the next after this point, we're going to talk about the part. Naaman was so strong and so powerful and so important. I mean, he was the definition of an insider. And yet the very definition of somebody who's unable to save himself. His strength, his money, his clothes, his prestige, his power, they're, they're worthless when it came to his healing. I mean, think, think and this, this is free and I don't have time, but think about the humility that uh, uh, Naaman needed to have. It starts off by being told, 
you need to go to Israel. Well, that's not something somebody from Aram wants to do. We've whooped up on them already. It's just little Israel. I gotta go to Israel, and then then this little girl is the one who's going to give you the the words of life. This little girl who you've taken captive. This little thirteen-year-old girl. This little. Why would I listen to her? And and then you you get there, and you get the messenger at the door peeking through. You don't even get the whole prophet. And then you got your servant saying, No, no, no! Don't walk away from this. Don't you need to do this? And then and then you gotta go jump into the Jordan River, which is nasty, by the way, in case you're wondering. Think about the humility that it took him. It's not about his wealth. It's not about his financial status. It's not about his position. None of that mattered. You and I, what, what we have is actually worthless to bring about the healing that we need from God. I was thinking about this this week. We, we are morally bankrupt. And I need you to get that. There's some things that happened in the last couple of weeks that have reminded me of this. We are morally bankrupt. Problem is we have fallen. We we have fallen for the lie. We, um, the evangelical church, the 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 the, the church uh, abroad in America, the the church of Mar- the, the Carroll County Church, Uniontown Bible Church. We've fallen for the lie that we're not morally bankrupt. We're just we're morally middle class. So we we we're not perfect. We certainly need some help here and there. I'm not terrible. And so what I need to do is actually just do some refinancing morally. And then I can do some really good things and put a smile on God's face. And then God will be more pleased with me because I'm morally middle class. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches every single one of us are morally bankrupt. And when we are morally bankrupt, we're starting at less than zero. We, we can't pay our bills. We, we can't even get on a payment plan. We have nothing. The Bible teaches every single one of us is a sinner we all find ourselves at the same starting point as a sinner. Listen. God doesn't save you because of you. God doesn't love you because you're lovable. God doesn't show you mercy because, because you deserve mercy. And that, there's beauty in starting there. We're relying on God to provide cleansing four of us, four of for us, and all of our starting points are the same. Not a single one of you has contributed to your own salvation. And every single one of you has been saved in spite of who you are. Because our God is a God of grace. And here's the crazy part. It is so simple. That's the last part. The simplicity of all this. He, Naaman was like, it can't be that simple. It can't be that simple. All we need to do, and even even our salvation today, is all we need to do, we just need to confess our our weaknesses, our sinfulness, our inability to gain salvation. And then then while we're confessing that that Jesus died for our sins, but not just died for our sins, but died because of our sins, is is it as simple as that? Yeah. See, the simplicity of the message of our healing, the healing that we need most desperately, it's not a physical healing, it's not an emotional healing, it's it's a spiritual healing. We need Someone to save us from our sins. And here's why. Our God is great and we are not. We, we, are, we are sinners. We're huge sinners. And, and we're such big sinners that God has put in us this brain that functions all of these parts and pieces, these lungs that hold air. And I use both the brain and the lungs to operate the mouth, the vocal cords and all the things to curse his name. That's how great God is, how sinful we are. How merciful he is that at the first time we do it, he doesn't just step on us. 
God's not going to allow the belittling of his name forever. We are all sinners. The wages of sin is death. That means every single one of us needs to have a death on our account to pay for our sins. But the simplicity of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God loved us and sent his son who, who would die not just for our sins, but because of our sins. And he would take upon himself the full wrath of God, be buried in a tomb, and then three days later, victoriously kick the stone aside so we can see that that tomb is empty forever. The good news of the gospel, the simplicity of our salvation that we love and we celebrate is a result of just jumping in the water seven times. Because we can't save ourselves. It's it's celebrating the fact that the death of Jesus Christ has already been put upon my account. So that now as God does the holy reckoning, he says, sinner. And it says, oh, Jesus, got it. So as we come boldly into his presence, when, whenever that last day we breathe our, our, our last is, whenever we, we cross that threshold and come into the presence of God, as we come into his presence and he says, okay, hold on, why should you come in? I don't even get to answer. Don't have to answer. Because Jesus is already there and he'll say, Dad, that was mine. That's on my account. We can have a right standing right now, not because of anything we've done. Because Jesus offers salvation through his death. It is Thanksgiving week. There is nothing you can be more thankful for than that. Father, thank you so much for the grace that you show to us each and every day. I thank you that we have a, a hope. That hope is in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus. Thank you that even in these stories of, of Naaman and of these, these the prophets and all these different things that pop up as we get to study your word, that we're just reminded of, of images and pictures of what Jesus came to do for us. Lord, I, I pray that you would be the one who's here this morning who may not know Christ. I pray that in our closing time together, that they would simply confess with their mouth that they're a sinner and that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to save them from their sins and did so through the death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I pray that they would just answer the resounding yes as they come into the, the, the understanding of their sin and your greatness. Lord, I pray for the rest of us that we would be overwhelmed with thankfulness and gratefulness, that we have a God who has given us exactly what we need, even though we don't deserve any of it. So may we celebrate that well as we consider what you've done. May we be a grateful and thankful people. We love you. Thank you for Christ. It's in his wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? Would you close your time singing with me?